been looking for a podcast about agriculture, one that can increase your farm's profitability, all without putting you to sleep, to sleep. Welcome to Field Trials Unleashed. We're experts in testing different farming practices and products. We test it and then report back to real skinny. This is Field Trials Unleashed. And here are your hosts, Craig Bloemker and Eric Beckett. Welcome back to another episode of Field Trials Unleashed. I'm Craig. And I'm Eric. This is episode number 13. Today we've got, and I'm very happy to say, we have a first ever live studio guest. So we've got Nathan Klachowski. Klachowski, that's right. Chesky. I was close. Yep. Welcome, Nathan. Go ahead and, and tell a little bit about yourself and what you're currently doing. Yeah, well, um, so um, my name is Nathan Klachowski. I am the um, entomology and plant pathology specialist at Gromark. Uh, and I'm also, uh, in terms of my background, grew up in Wisconsin I did a doctorate in plant pathology at Ohio State, spent some time at at Purdue, was a field crop pathologist out at Maryland and Delaware for about four years, and then the field crop pathologist at Illinois before coming here. So uh, glad to be here. Glad to be talking with you all today about, uh, you know, diseases and insects and everything else. So, um, yeah. And I really like that intro you have, too. It's very professional. Thank you. Very nice. We worked really hard on that, I can tell you. yeah. Well, very good. Well, let's talk about the environment because here in East Central Illinois, we've had more than our fair share of rain. And I think as you go north, uh, it's even greater. I think Bloomington, I heard that it got 11 inches or so. Yep. So what's that do going forward in the next coming weeks? What are we looking at? So what we're looking at right now, we got to think about a couple of things. Um, you know, it's not just not just when, you know, rain in general, it's when we get the rain. And we look at our crops and the stage of, of where they're at. We're starting to canopy. We're starting to get into tasseling or we're starting to, you know, throw out flowers and a lot of our soybeans. Those are stages where, um, you know, those foliar diseases, especially the, the residue-borne ones, are going to start to be more problematic. And what that rain does, what that rain does is it, is it kind of like, I don't know, wakes up those fungi, gets them going. They start to grow. They feed on that residue. They produce more spores, and those spores can move up into the canopy. So when we start to see these wet conditions as those canopies close, that's typically when we're going to start to say, all right, we're, we're starting to enter uh, an, uh, a potential situation where we we could have more foliar fungal diseases occur. And uh, with the with the rains that we've had and the stages we're at, um, some of these fields are going to be at potentially at high risk for some of these foliar diseases. So I like to think about the disease pyramid now, as as you were telling me offline. So mm-hmm. tell tell the growers and listeners what what consistent of the because it used to be the disease triangle, where you had the environment, uh, pathogen, and time, correct? And the host. And the, the host. host. That, oh, that would be Pretty the most important, important part. Yeah. Yeah. Duh. Yeah. So what? <laughs> maybe I jumped ahead and started talking about the pyramid. So tell us what's in the pyramid. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, the triangle is good. That's fine. Um, so, so really in order to get disease, like disease isn't something that you just get automatically. So if you have it one year, you won't necessarily get it the next year. And every farmer will tell you that. I had something last year and I didn't get it this year. What the heck? Um, and it's because the conditions got to be right. So you have to have the, you have, first you have to have the pathogen. It's got to be the right pathogen um, in the right location at the right 
period of time. And so some some pathogens are specific to corn, some are specific to you know soybeans and and vice versa. Some have a broader host range. Um, so that's that's why when we talk about scouting and identification, it's important to know what we're talking about. Um, the second thing is the environment. So these pathogens, they much like us have conditions that they do well in and and conditions that they do poorly in. Some, for example, white mold or tar spot, they like it cooler. Uh, southern rust likes it really hot. And so depending on the temperature, that can really influence when these diseases will take off. And then the uh, third thing is the host, right? And so are we going out there planting a racehorse hybrid that's susceptible to everything and it's going to get a bunch of diseases um, because all of its energy is going into producing those big big ears or lots of lots of uh, beans? Or uh, are, we are we planting something that's resistant, right? And that resistance is going to be specific to a, a disease. Again, why it's important to identify what your problems are historically in a field. And then you mentioned the pyramid. So that what what that triangle tells you, it tells you is when you're like when you're going to get disease. What the pyramid tells you is okay. So how long are you staying in those conditions? Because the longer you're in those conditions, the more disease you're going to have. So if you only have two or three, a great example. Last year we were we were talking about how it was wet right around tassel, and then it just shut down and it got hot and dry and yep. nothing happened. That's a great example of that time component, you know, was short and then the pyramid wasn't there. So you didn't see that disease and then it picked up again later. Well, we had already finished up most of our yield. So at yep. that point, you know, you're not protecting much. So, uh, so that's when you talk about the pyramid, that's why it's important to keep those things in mind. You know, nothing's certain. Sure. Yeah. Scouting. Well, we talk scouting all the time. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's critical. Yeah, I know because last year, I mean, we had we did have some tar spot come in this area, but it was so late in the season. And when I say late, I mean I, we'd already reached black layer in a lot of instances. And so, I, I really don't know of if any at all really maybe yield impacts that might have had. But now it's definitely you know we we got it in the area, so most likely we're probably going to see it again. I suspect. Yeah, most likely. I mean, you'll see it later in the season. And the fields that are going to be at, in this area at least, when you're talking about East Central Illinois, the areas that are probably going to be higher risk are going to be the late planted fields with longer season corn. So it's sitting out there greener longer. So when you're later in the season, things are cooling down, that's going to be favoring infection and favoring disease. So you think about like your risk and you'd probably be at higher risk to see issues then. Gotcha. I thought I had tar spot, but it was just fly poop. So Yep. Yeah, you don't <laughs> want to be that guy. <laughs> Lick it. Yeah. As you're, you're in a much broad, broad territory than uh, Eric and I would say. Um, what are your observations as you're going about taking a look at stuff? Or have you had a chance? Maybe you had with all the rain. Well, yeah. So there's a lot of rain. It's hard to scout when you're knee high up in, in mud and water in a lot of places. <laughs> but you're getting a lot of questions about whether or not, you know, we're going to see white mold up in the cooler areas up in Wisconsin, northern Illinois. We've got some observations of tar spot early in irrigated fields up in northwest Illinois, northeast Iowa. Not surprising there. Um, and then with all the recent rains we've had, I think just in general, people are, are curious about what we might see here in the next couple of weeks showing up because we did have such dry, hot weather nothing's really been happening, at least from the disease side, that's been of, of note. And so, um, you know, nothing's really started up. But with all the rains we've had, we're starting to see that 
those conditions of that triangle and the the pyramid are starting to you know coincide with when we might see some of these things start up and once they start up you know it's important to keep an eye on those and make sure that if you have to manage them you manage them when you when you have to and you do it at the right time now any of the stuff that you're seeing you know maybe not in the immediate area but within you know the central corn belt or eastern corn belt is there any of those uh, that you do you feel might be a risk that you know be, could be brought in on you know prevailing winds? Not too much. A lot of the diseases we're concerned about right now are residue-borne diseases that don't move especially far, and and a lot of times when we do see diseases move long distances on rain, on on wind, it's because they built up to a substantial amount somewhere else. So it's not like we have a huge pocket of disease somewhere that could blow over. Um, you know, in, in general, when we think about diseases moving in, we're talking about, you know, Southern rust would be yeah, the big exactly. one. And this year we've been, we've been lucky. I mean, it's pretty much just hanging out in Georgia, just doing its thing over there. And we haven't gotten any tropical storms or anything. We're starting to tassel already. So not something I'm particularly concerned about, you know, this season. I cross my fingers that we don't get three hurricanes moving through. <laughs> but Yeah. yeah. So I want, to th- I want to talk quickly about frog eye leaf spot because I think up until a couple years ago, a lot of growers were caught unawares with uh, frog eye and mm-hmm. the, the chemistries that we're using mm-hmm. with the fungicide didn't necessarily coincide with treating frog eye leaf spot. Yeah, so that's, that's a, again, a fungal disease. It's, it's uh, something that's related to great leaf spot on corn. Different species, obviously, so it's specific to soybean. Likes it when it's really wet and and warm. Those days where it's like an overhanging dew, kind of foggy. Yep. Those are perfect for frog eye. Um, typically, historically, this is a disease that we would see in the kind of the warmer southern areas of of you know soybean production. Um, but it's been moving further and further north. And whether that's climate change or it's an adaptation of the pathogen, I'm not quite sure. But that disease, when it when it does, um, you know, when canopies close. What we see are those, you know, the spores will land on the leaves. They'll start to produce these orange lesions. On the bottom of those lesions, you'll get these silvery spores, and then you can have what we call, uh, it's a polycyclic disease, so you get more and more spores produced over time. And when we start to see that disease take off, you know, around flowering or soon after, you know, that might be a time when we need to think about managing it. Um, We do have good resistance out there for frog eye. So you see in areas where frog eyes a persistent problem, you'll see those producers will be throwing stuff out there that has good resistance to break that disease triangle, so it can't take hold. But in areas like this, it's probably not on your radar. So a lot of the you know cultivars we're putting on are probably pretty susceptible to frog eye. So when we do start to see frog eye taking off, and and we're getting into these wet, warm periods, you know that's that's when we're going to have to think about management and uh you know what we're going to do and the thing with frog eye leaf spot and that pathogen in particular is we've got some resistance some fungicide resistance showing up um and failure showing up uh you know in many different states Uh, a couple years ago iowa was just hammered with issues with strobilurin resistant frog eye leaf spot and so we want to avoid that as much as we can so if we do have to make a fungicide application we got to be careful about what we're choosing so and uh, if I'm not mistaken, we've actually we've had resistant frog eye here in Champaign County for probably the last 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean it's it's been around. I mean, there's a lot of pockets in the southern part of the state, but there's probably a lot more out there than we think. And what's pushed that is just kind of the use of single mode of action strobilurin fungicides. You know, year in and year out, over and over and over, keeping that selection pressure on the population. And so we're allowing the resistant ones to survive and grow and reproduce. 
And so now we have, you know, these fields with frog eye leaf spot that maybe yeah. would have been killed in other situations. And we've kind of. No different than, than weed resistance. Exactly. Yeah. Or insect resistance, yeah. anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. I had a note for watch outs. Well, I mean, we're moving. So, you know, things right now, in general, I don't think there's a lot flaring up. I mean, we talked about things that are kind of, you know, we're sort of seeing th- some things. And the reason why I don't think we're seeing a lot is because it was so hot and dry there for quite a long time. So if right. you think about, you know, the start, we're, we're, we're finally starting the cars up. They're starting to go around the track. Yeah. So, you know, things to keep out for in the next few weeks in terms of diseases. I mean, you got to be out there in your fields before VT, you know, keeping an, keeping an eye out for your your common things, your, um, you know, your uh, gray leaf spot, northern corn leaf blight. And if you've got a field that's continuous corn, that's high residue corn, the history of that disease, I mean, you definitely want to be making sure you're looking out because those are going to be high risk fields. And that's that's something that if you got a susceptible hybrid out there with the conditions we've had, that can pick up and flare up pretty quick and uh, really knock down your yields. Those are the big things. Yep. I know that I've been having some conversations with our seed specialists about um, for hybrids and whatnot for watch outs and stuff and truly trying to get those identified that, you know, if we are going to maybe not spray everything uh, during fungicide season, that maybe if you're going to pick and choose which hybrids to pick and choose, that's been having those conversations lately so we can make the best recommendations mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i mean it, it does make a huge difference in terms especially in terms of like gray leaf spot northern corn leaf blight if you've got a resistant and susceptible i mean you're the benefit you're going to get from a fungicide from one to the other is i wouldn't say night and day but it's it's substantial uh, so you're susceptible you know yeah. going out with a fungicide you're going to make your money back a lot more often than you will yep. with one of those resistant ones so now with all the current and recent rains, and we're probably just starting to kind of get some rootworm beetles emerge and everything, mm-hmm. uh, what, what do you think of all the rains have done? Have you think it's, it's slowed any of those adult beetles down any, or, you know, maybe those late bloomers, the larvae, do you think it's drowned any of those out? That's a really good question. And, and I think a couple of years ago, people were asking the same questions and we had those, those rains that just kept pushing through and pushing through. I mean, insects need to breathe too, right? Yeah. So I would think in, in some areas, maybe you got, you know, pooled areas, there might be some localized, some, some death, (laughs) some of those beetles or some of those larvae. But to be honest, I I don't think it's going to be significant enough to really reduce yeah. The damage that we're seeing. And and there's already people out. I mean, people have been out looking at at hybrids here for the last couple of weeks because rootworms have been feeding now since, what, two, three weeks now? Yeah, at least. And adults are starting to emerge. So they've already done a lot of damage. Damage's um, already been done. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you might see there might be some differences in the amount of adults that come out, and that's why it's important to monitor the adults and where we're seeing them and how much of them are out there because that's going to influence next year's. Uh, hot pockets, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think unlucky for us, I think a lot of those larvae missed missed the heavy rains. So. Yeah, yeah, no, um, we're getting ready as a company wide. We're getting ready to put out, start putting out traps and everything. So I think that'll be the ultimate, um, you know, telltale sign of you know what type of survival rates and everything. And then mm-hmm. and then always, you know, it, it's always good to follow up with root digs, you know, especially if you see maybe a breakdown. Mm-hmm. Um, su- suspect any breakdowns in traits or anything. Yeah. Yeah. And when you're getting around that VT stage is a good time when you want to do some digs and rate for nodal injury because, you know, it, you can't predict when you're going to get lodging, but if you get it, 
you know, you're in trouble. So yeah. you might want to say, I've got, I've got issues in fields X, Y, and Z. Maybe we want to put those earlier on the schedule and harvest those and get those out so we don't have to deal with any potential issues, you know. Now, if uh, growers are seeing uh, an uptick or it seems to be a large population of beetles in their fields, do you, um, do you recommend any type of in-season management strategies for those beetles other than, you know, if they're cl- clipping silks? Well, some, you know, if they're they're out there, they can clip silks. They can cause issues if if, um, if there are some, you know, significant populations out there. But oftentimes they don't they don't need to be managed um, within season. So, you know, that that's typically something we don't we don't worry about too much. It can be a problem, but it's it's not very frequent. So Nathan, uh, you know, I kind of posed the question: what, what do we thought that the rains might have done for the rootworm? pressure um but you know kind of shifting gears here um i guess what what are your kind of general takes of what the all the excessive rain might have done for the cyst nematode uh, populations within soybeans yeah good question um i'd say not a whole heck of a lot yeah that's what i was afraid you were gonna say yeah and and well so it it, it's kind of a tough question because when we have cyst nematodes they're in cysts and those eggs are within cysts not all those eggs hatch at once Right. right So the rains could potentially drown out some of those juveniles that have hatched because they're trying to get at those young soybeans. Right. But the, there's other ones that are out there that are just going to keep coming. Okay. I mean, it's it's just kind of like, uh, you know, the Braveheart scene where you just have all these guys <laughs> and they're just coming in waves, you yeah. know. It's kind of like that. So unfortunately, yeah, you can't you can't say, oh, it rained. You don't have to worry about soybean cysts this year. Right. Uh, you, you have to. And uh, unfortunately, that's one of those pathogens where once you get it, it, it it's hard to get rid of it. Right. You know, so. Yeah. And I, I mean, I've been seeing some stuff lately that there has been, there's been some real documented breakdowns in some of the resistant genes we've had, like the mm-hmm. Peking or the PI mm-hmm. um, genes. Um, is there, do you know of anything on the radar that, you know, maybe plant breeders are working on to overcome yeah. some of those hurdles? Yeah. And so you're right. So that the main source of resistance we have that's been used in ever since we've gotten Roundup, Roundup Ray beans out that PI8788, yep. you know, gene. Yep. That's been in everything, yeah, okay, and and so that's it's because of that. It's just like we we're talking about resistance with insecticides and fungicides. Same thing. We keep exposing populations to this source of resistance. Right. They're going to develop ways to overcome it, and that's that's what's happening. Okay, um, and it's been happening for a while. And actually, you know, we're there's there's some work out of Illinois that's going to be you know showing some of the HG types, some of the insensitivity levels that we have. Uh, here in the state, but I mean, it's 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 really to a point where that gene is not effectively controlling soybean cyst nematode like it was 10, 15 years ago. Right. So, um, and that's tough for us because we don't have, and I'm trying to think back of the absolute numbers, but when you look at the cultivars that we have available to us here. It's pretty narrow. And, yeah. I mean, if you get a thousand cultivars, it's like 950 are, you know, PI 88788. And then we have 50 with other sources. And so it's hard to rotate to a different source of resistance out there. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's been, uh, it's been a problem that's been building and developing over time. Um, we are, I, I, I am aware of a couple of companies that are going to be bringing out some new cultivars, hopefully in the next couple of years. Yeah, um, but there again, it's not going to help us out this year. Not this year. So yeah, we, you know, but, but again, you know, the best thing you can do, if you've got the best thing you can do, one is get your fields tested. Like at the end of the season, get out there, 
when you're doing your fertilizer tests, you know, get out there with your probe, take some soil, send it off to a, a reputable place like a, you know, university clinic or something like that sure. to get your numbers tested. Do that every three to five years to see if your numbers are going up and down. If you're seeing that your thresholds are up and they're real high, the best thing you can do is just rotate out of soybean for one year. I'm not saying t- three, 10, 15 years, just right. one year. And research has shown that, you know, sometimes that one year can reduce your populations by up to 50%. And that's that's a pretty good slug. So then you go back to beans and you're... So maybe even in a real heavy pressure, maybe maybe a two-year corn and then one year soybean could even be even even more beneficial. Yeah, you'd, you'd think so, but it's not really that way. It's that first year that's going to do it because you think about, you know, you mentioned the eggs, you know, juveniles, that's, that'll survive. Yeah. Those, if you don't have soybeans in that field, then next year you plant your soybeans in there or you plant your corn in there, all those juveniles will die. All those eggs that will hatch will die. So you'll still have eggs in the field that'll be able to survive, but it's, it's much less. So you, you do see a little more, but it's not like 50%. You might go from 50 to say 55% no, okay. or something like that. It's that last bit of percentage is the mm-hmm. hardest to overcome in exactly. so many cases. Exactly. Yeah. What kind of thresholds do we have here in East Central Illinois specifically? Because I think guys are always exp- surprised when I tell them that we do have some pressures here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because we've done some sampling of our own just internally, nothing off the labs. It, we can find them, no doubt about it. So they're always kind of shocked by that. But what kind of thresholds do you think we have? Yeah, nematode thresholds are, to be honest, they're they're wavy gravy. Like, it's not like an insect threshold where you're able to really accurately assess the type of damage that you're going to get. You know, uh, nematodes are hard to, they're underground, and each soil type is going to have an impact on them, and it's just hard to monitor things. So it's really a best guess. But when you're getting anywhere between, say, two and 5,000, and I know that seems like a big range, but like two to 5,000, eggs per 100 cubic centimeters, which is a pretty standard measure, you know, that would be at a, a medium moderate level of, uh, of soybean cyst nematodes, not an uncommon level. And you could start to probably see some yield loss at that level. You get into 10,000 or more, then you've had, you have some major issues. You know, you, you get into the five digits, you better, you better be thinking about rotating for a year into corn. Yeah, I know. It seems like too often that, you know, soybean cyst nematodes, they seem to kind of get forgotten about until maybe later in the season, you know, when we get into some hot, dry conditions, and then we start seeing something goofy going on out in the field, and we can't quite put our finger on it. But then when we start looking at, you know, maybe the roots, to pulling some um, soil tests, you know, then, then, then we were like, oh, man, we got a problem here. But, you know... I guess, you know, you, you just gave us some, you know, some um, cultural practices we could do as far as rotating. Now, are there any other practices that, you know, maybe we could do? Have you seen that, you know, maybe some of the seed treatments um, are effective? I mean, I know we've had some products that we did have available to us that have recently been pulled off of the market, but mm-hmm. of anything else? Well, uh, to be honest, we're thinking about like rank, ranking the practices in terms of the, the amount of nematodes that we're going to knock off of our plate. Say we have a a plate full of nematodes. We're going yeah. to get, say, up to half of that plate off with a rotation of corn. Uh, if, and again, if you can find something that has a different source of resistance, that's going to get rid of another huge chunk potentially, mm-hmm. but we don't have much that's available to right. us in a lot of areas. But there are some seed treatments um, and those seed treatments in general, you know, under those situations where you might have like moderate pressure i'd say yeah will probably be the most effective you know light to moderate 
pressure. You got to keep in mind with these seed treatments, and I tell people they're not fumigants, right? right? Yeah. They're like any other seed treatment we have. They have a window of activity, and if the seed's not germinating and growing or the conditions aren't right for the eggs to hatch and those nematodes to grow, they're not yeah. going to have an effect. So, yeah. so some of these, um, so like a, a seed treatment would be kind of, you know, it's, it's not a, like a, a broadcast herbicide application. It's more like a post-directed herbicide application where it's going to be a very narrow and it's not going to take care of everything in the field. Right. It has, it, it's kind of, yeah, you're right. It's not like it, it has a very long window of activity and even where it does work, it's going to be working, you know, right very around localized. that seed. So what the idea is that you're able to push that, push those nematodes that emerge and start feeding on that developing seedling back a couple of weeks. So you might have a generation because yep. it takes about three weeks. You know, a generation of SCN is about three to four weeks in in normal conditions. So maybe you can push back one generation. Now, once um, some of these uh, resistant genes that you know are bred into the soybeans, d- do we see that you know that once resistant is developed in one in one gene, does that population remain resistant, or can we, or is there the opportunity to rotate back to some of these maybe older resistance that maybe these SEN populations haven't seen for a number of years? That, that's a good question. I think maybe a breeder might be able to better yeah. answer that. <laughs> you know, it's it's the from from my perspective, boy, it'd be great. Just throw that resistance in there, and it's going to work. And I think a lot of times, um, agronomically, those those cultivars, they're just not viable for us. And right. so that's why we haven't seen a lot of introgression of other, you know, these other traits yep. here in this region, because what we're working with is not, it's just not usable. You go down in the South, they have a lot more to choose from and SCN is not an issue for them anymore. In fact, they'll tell you, even though we see these SCN maps and it's red, you know, in, in the South, they'll say, wow, we can't even find SCN down here anymore. You know, so they've been able to rotate and do different, you know, different different practices to eliminate it, which right. we can't do here. Yeah. I think it's great information because that's, that's the questions I always have is like, well, okay, we have it. We know we've probably got some out there, but what do we do about it? So, mm-hmm. you know, the other thing I, I didn't mention and you know, I tell people too, is that you know, we talk about rotation of resistance, but it, even if you rotate your cultivars, that's important. So don't go back with the same one the next year if you're in continuous soybeans, because that resistance, that P88788 resistance it's uh, it's kind of kind of quantitative, and so there's there's copies of that gene in there, and the more copies you have, the stronger it is. So if you have one that didn't work one year, you can come back, and you'll have one that you know is exposing it to a different level, and so that can help to kind of you know freak. Not, I don't want to say freak out, but yeah. just change things up for that nematode population, so yeah. they're not constantly exposed to the same thing. That's what you got to do: is avoid consistency. I did not know that about that. As as far as, you know, with, like, say, the Peking or the PI, that, you know, if, say, if you had this one variety and you continuously, but if you, but as long as, you know, you're switching, say, variety is what you're saying is switching varieties, mm-hmm. individual numbers, that you can still get some benefit from yeah, that, even though absolutely. it's the same trait. Okay. Absolutely, yeah. If you look at some of the data of even the, the PI, you, you might say, okay, well, SCN's able to reproduce on that pretty well, but... It, it's a range. It's not like a yes or no. It's it's kind of like when you see a triazole resistant curve where you have some that are really, really bad and some right. that are really good and then some in the middle. So if you can rotate, you're kind of hedging your bets and maybe I'll end up on this side of the curve or this <laughs> side of the curve. But at, at the same time, you're not exposing them to the same thing right. all the time. Yeah. 
Well, it's a good key message that not to continuously do the same thing year after year. It's easy. In the same field. It's easy, but yeah, I mean, people don't like change. Yeah. But. Well, let's let's talk about, let's stay with the theme of products here, Nathan. Mm-hmm. I think a lot, of, a lot of people are interested, and I, I'm going to refrain from talking about products too heavily here, but let's talk about fungicides, because mm-hmm. we've got several new ones on the market. What can you tell us? Maybe where they're fit, and maybe where... Somebody might be, want to use maybe a, a standard or a you know a, an oldie but a goodie. Gotcha. So so one of the things we think let's let's take a history lesson back here. You know when when a lot of these fungicides were starting to be used on field crops, they were just single site mode of action. They had one act one one way they worked. There was one active ingredient that did one thing, and now you're starting to see three three things. You know two three things in a product. That's pretty pretty standard. Um, when the the reason that you're seeing a lot of that is because you're getting additional efficacy benefits, but you're also getting a reduction in resistance development or buildup in the populations, right? So that's uh you know that's that's why you're starting to see this uh, out there. there. You don't want to see additional failures of of active ingredients. So if we break down the major active ingredients we have in field crops, there's really three big ones that we utilize in our field crops for foliar disease suppression. You have your triazoles, which are your, you, um, you talk about frac groups or you look at your labels, there's a number on there. Those are going to be your group threes. So those are working by um, basically preventing a uh, component of the cell membrane to be formed. So the cell membranes don't form right and fungi don't, don't grow right. Um, the other thing is you got your, your uh, strobilurins. Those are the, the big ones everyone's familiar with, your zoxystrobin, picoxystrobin, pyroclostrobin. Those have really, really good um, residual activity, protective activity. Trizoles have really good curative activity. Um, and they have broad spectrum activity as well. And then now we're dealing with this second generation, what we call SDHIs or group sevens. So back in the day, the carboxins and the bosculates, those are the old ones that we're familiar with. But the new SDHIs have spectrum activity and performance is very similar to those QOIs, but it's act- acting on a different, on a different, in a different way on the fungi. And so a lot of the products we're seeing are including multiple modes of action. Um, and because of that, we're seeing, you know, that these, these products are in oftentimes more effective with a single shot than, than some of these other ones. So our triazoles, if, for example, if we would go out with just a, let's say tilt, that's yeah. an old, that's a, you know, Propamax, I don't yeah. know, just, just some, you know, Propaconazole product. That's a triazole product works really well right uh, on a lot of different foliar diseases, but it's going to have about two weeks of efficacy and then it's going to run out of gas. Um, but if you run out with, you know, the next thing you think about it, and again, I don't want, you know, I'm just giving examples, but like Quiltexel, which you'd have as oxystrobin and propiconazole, you've added that curative activity of the propiconazole to the azoxystrobin, And now you've got, you know, about a three, three week window, you know, of protection there. And so that's what you're seeing with a lot of these products is you're, the, the efficacy is is a lot better, and so that's why you're 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 paying a little more of a premium for those fungicides. You're getting more actives, you're getting more benefit spectrum wise. So um, the protection, the overall you know protection you're getting is going to be oftentimes better. Plus, you get the, you don't have to deal with the resistance issues right. as much, right? So then, with the uh, SDHIs, what how much more level of protection or extended level of protection are, are we gaining in general for some you know when we see the addition? 
Well, well, what you're, you know, in general, you're you're still going to be getting about three weeks or so of of good protection of those tissues. You're getting a little, maybe a little better spectrum of okay. activity, right? So even within the SDHIs, they'll differ in, in terms of their spectrum, okay. which diseases they were good on and which diseases they won't. The same with the the strobilurins. And so what you'll see with these products is they try to match up a strobilurin and a and a DMI and an SDHI so that they're filling the gaps. Sure. So you have a more complete, there's less holes there. Everything is more filled up. And so, you know, you end up with a better overall protection package than you were if you were just to go out with a single single site mode of action fungicide. But there again, it's still important to scout your fields to know exactly what you've got so you can match the right product. Even though we're getting a lot more broad spectrum from some of these um, products that are on the market, it's still very important to scout your fields and know what you've got. Yeah, and you, I mean, it's getting them on there at the right time too. Um, so uh, we were talking earlier about revenge sprays, and I, yeah. I don't remember which one of you was talking about that. With diseases, that's not what you want to do. I mean, if you're if you've got a field that's blasted with gray leaf spot and it's gray, I mean, the tissue's dead. So right. you've wasted a lot of money putting a fungicide on. You're not you're not doing anything. So that's why. That's why there are timings for putting fungicides on. They're, they're, those timings are there because the research has supported that, you know, this is the best timing. If you look like you're going to be in a high-risk situation, that this is going to be a benefit to you. Right. Um, so, and in corn, it's that that VT to, you know, R2, R3 window, depending yeah. on what weather you're in right. and your situation. And in soybeans, that R1, R3 window, maybe a little later again, depending on your situation. Do we need to go into the growth stages? Yeah, I mean, it might not hurt. Just a quick refresher. I, I mean, think I think our, you know, the the V stages or the you know the reproductive stages for corn are probably a lot more easier to identify. That you know, VT is obviously tassel, and then you know when we think about going out to R three, that's going to be our brown silk. You know, beginning brown silk of the, those ears, and then mm -hmm. um, soybeans. You know, R one is going to be our uh, flowering. And then when we think about getting out into R3, then we're looking at, is there a pod development in the four uppermost, you know, nodes of the soybean plant? And then that pod also needs to be about three sixteenths of an inch long before, you know, we can really count. But, you know, as, you know, we get into the season, we start getting these pop-up um, thunderstorms, we can go backwards in growth with soybeans. And uh, so it's really important to stay on top of scouting, mm -hmm. especially for soybeans. And um, because, you know, maybe one week we, you know, we're really close. But then when we think we're about getting ready to go make that application, then we've gone backwards and, you know, maybe that window has extended itself. Mm -hmm. And you think, you think about fungicide applications again, and why do we put them on when we put them on? And we're, you're talking about corn and the application stage there. We're going, you know, from, from when those tassels are popping out till the, you know, silks have been basically pollinated and you're getting yeah. green fill. That's, that's really a, a crucial stage from, you know, VT to R4 in there, that's where a lot of your carbohydrates are going in to your ears. Yeah. And so if you get a disease coming in on your corn, on that ear leaf and above, that's 90% of your, your grain fills coming from that tissue. So that's why we, that's why we say spray then, you know, yeah. protect that tissue with soybeans, that upper 30% of the canopy is contributing the majority of your yield. And so keeping that healthy is important as well. And so that's why we, that's why we say, you know, go for those timings because it's going to give you the best. That's when, if you encounter stress, you know, you're going to lose yield. So you, those three weeks of protection you get from a fungicide or so are going to be really beneficial at that point in time. 
I feel like we need to also talk about the uh, adjuvant piece for corn. Mm-hmm. And I think, Eric, we talked about this on another episode possibly, or at least yeah, we discussed I mean, it. Yeah, we, we've talked about adjuvants, but I don't know what we necessarily have discussed it as it pertains to fungicides, though. So internally, we have, uh, you know, FS talent. So I guess let's talk about why the adjuvant selection is so important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, at least at least as it relates to uh, corn, right? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's um, with with corn there. There's been, and again, this is this is this has been known for a while um, that there are some components, or there were some components, are some components of some of these adjuvants, and we call them a, you know, APE. And again, I'm not going to get into the chemical thing. And there's, an, there's another one as well. I believe it's NPE. NPE, APE, yeah. ape and nip. I don't know what you <laughs> yeah. would call it. But, but they're, uh, basically, they've kind of narrowed it down and said, okay, well, if, if we're applying pretassel with adjuvants or something that has these components in them, we see this you know, beer can ear or rested ear syndrome occur more frequently it's it's not 100 percent of the time but it can occur and the reason behind that it still hasn't been you know nailed down but they think it has something to do with like ethylene signaling or function and that can cause ears to abort anyway so the the recommendation you look at all your fungicide labels and i mean it will say don't use an adjuvant before tassel and it'll say that right on the label and the reason behind that is because the science is still a little out there you know, in terms of these products and what can cause arrested uh, ear development. So yeah. we, you would say, you know, avoid avoid an adjuvant or avoid avoid an adjuvant that contains APE or NPE yeah. or both of those. Yeah. And I think one of the things you were mentioning about about talent is that that one doesn't particularly that one doesn't contain any APE or NPE. Correct. Yeah. So that's been that's been the the reason and and the data have kind of shown that they haven't seen any arrested ear development. One of the things people have to keep in mind is that, um, again, the science has been a little iffy out there. And so, you know, there are other things that cause beer can ears on on corn. Um, A lot of different things. Environmentally, insect pests, you know, nutrients, other things that can cause beer can ears. So if you see beer can ear, and I've been on calls like this before where I've been in variety trials and it's like one variety has it and another one doesn't, doesn't and we can't figure out what it is. There's, it's not clear cut and there's, there's a lot of things there. So if you do see beer can ears, you know, you need to be, need to be taking your entire picture and then try not just to blame it on some adjuvant or misspray because there are a lot of different things that can cause that particular symptom to happen. Eric nope. and I talk about yeah. that a lot, though. Yeah, just no, as agronomists walking into field, getting blinders on and like, oh, well, that's the problem. We yeah. Just right. pinpoint it. Yeah, and 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 you do you do have to kind of go back and and just kind of take a breath and say, all right, you know, what did we do? Look at, especially if you see it in one particular hybrid, you know, look at it in nearby fields and see, do I have something similar going on, you know, and just try to try to break it down that way. Yep, definitely. And and then you know, and and the reason why we use some of these adjuvants is probably you know primarily because of you know using low volume carriers like in our aerial application. So, you know, we we don't have the water to get you know the, to get you know, as good as coverage as, you know, if we were, say, we were doing a ground rig. And so that's one of the main reasons. And then the other thing is to help with deposition aids, to help, you know, make sure the product lands where we want it to. And then also to increase wetness time of that of that product so that way we can get the product absorbed into the, into the leaf because oftentimes it does turn off hot and dry during fungicide applications. So just to keep that product as wet as possible for as long. 
Yeah, because it, it takes a good, you know, a good hour to two hours to take up a fungicide 100%, you know, into the leaf. You don't want that evaporating. You don't want that. And you've paid good money for it. You don't want it blowing off. Uh, into or getting rained on. Tree leaf or, you know, trees or getting rained on. Yeah. 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 That sort of thing. So, you know, th- those are all reasons why people use adjuvants. Yeah. I, I mean, there's a lot of built-in adjuvants in a lot of those systems, obviously, in the different products. But 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 the adjuvants that are added can help with some of the things yeah. you mentioned under those conditions. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Any parting words? Not, you know, my, my big thing is people need to be getting out in their fields now, um, you know, pre-tassel and making some decisions, you know, whether or not they want to do a VT or wait off or not make an application, but they need to be in, somebody's got to be in that field looking. Um, and, you know, you're going to start to see things flare up here in the next seven to 10 days in high risk fields. So definitely target those and, uh, and, and kind of see what happens. And even if you're already on paper saying I'm going to make an application again getting that timing right can be important so if you if you can hold it off a week or two or if you have to get in on earlier you know make that decision so you're not somebody making a revenge spray definitely or somebody who's got you know got on way too early and the disease starts later because two weeks from now we get a a wet you know yeah so there so you know basically you know what we're saying right now is you know, even though we think we may, we, it still may be best to wait to see if we do as opposed to a real, you know, have, have a good push for a preventant. Yeah, because I, I mean, I haven't heard of anybody really seeing, saying, oh, my gosh, there's a big flare up of X, Y or Z anywhere. Right. To be honest, it's been like I've seen a lesion of this here, a lesion of this there. Exactly. And we say, all right, well, come back, check on it in a week and yeah. see if it's still there. You know, you still got time before it's tassel. Oh, yeah. Um, so, I mean, typically I, I'd say for those like Northern and gray leaf spot, if you've got noticeable, um, symptoms in those ear leaves below or the, sorry, not ear leaves, those leaves below the ear leaf, you know, then, then making an application at VT or that window might yeah. help you, you know, same, same thing with in the Northern areas, we're talking about tar spot, you know, getting in there if you see it before tassel. I mean, that, that's the key. If you see it in that lower canopy before tassel and the weather looks Good, but I always tell people irrigation doesn't care about the weather, and when those canopies are closed, you get a rain, and that humidity stays in there for a long time. So it's did you get a rain? Yeah. You know, yeah. kind of is what I tell people. Yeah. Any rain is going to promote disease, yep. uh, but if you run into a dry spell like we did last year, it'll shut things off pretty fast. Yeah. Now, in your experience, now somebody that's maybe raising seed corn and stuffs mm-hmm. under center pivot, mm-hmm. um, do you, do you find merit in continuous sprays throughout the throughout the uh, you know once we've gotten past say R three, um, continuing to spray beyond that? Only only if you've got conditions that are really favoring disease in those situations. Uh, rarely will we see the need for an additional an additional spray. But man, I think back to what was that 2018 where we just got rains yeah. that were going through. There were some situations there where maybe people could have done in like an R3 and an R4 or VT and an R3 spray and, and it might've paid for them. It probably would have in yeah. those situations, but yeah, that's, that's a, that's a pretty one off and isolated scenarios. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. Well, with fungicide, should we mention anything about the plant health benefits with ethylene production? That's what I was sitting here waiting. I mean, up. do you think it's a merit this year, or do you think as far you know? Well, not it, just this year. I, 
Well, is there? Yeah. I, in general, because I mean, I think that's the that's the question everybody has. You know, and it's like, okay, I don't have the disease, but I still have that plant that plant health, and like Eric was mentioning about the ethylene production. Is there any merit to just putting on a bunch of side just for the plant health just, component or harvestability well, even? Well, so yeah, that's a good question. So I mean, what I what I tend to so there are some lab studies that show that the application of strobularin fungicides can help with you know stomatal closure and X, Y, and Z, and so um, that by itself could potentially have a plant health benefit, especially if you're in like a high stress situation, a drought. Now, um, practically in the field, you see that about 10% of the time, more or less, you know, by itself. What I tell people is, I think um, some of the times when we claim there's no disease, there's actually disease out there. It's just not where we're rating it or when we're rating it. And so um, practically, almost every field has disease to some extent. Um, It's just, we tend to say we want to make, you know, the applications are best going to pay for themselves when we know there's going to be enough damage to cause an economic loss. And so in those situations where we might see some, some yield improvement, we've probably also reduced some disease. We just didn't measure, you know, and in, in those 10% and adding in that, you know, fraction of the time when we see the health benefits. So, in, in general, we see when we look at the data, uh, if we go out, and again, this is looking at university data, meta, meta-analysis from across states, and really, I guess, just susceptible situations under the conditions we're at this year, you're looking at about a 70% chance of making your money under our commodity prices with a fungicide application which is pretty good. That's Those are pretty really high. good odds in the yeah. agriculture. In a, in a susceptible, yeah, and in a, in a susceptible cultivar. But again, yeah, I try to tell people that. So that's why, you know, you got to, got to keep that in mind. There's, there's always this economic piece too, as well. You're protecting your input, you're protecting the money you've put in your crop. And if it, if you're, you know, if commodity prices look good, well, you know, the data is telling you, you can make better than 50% on that application. Yeah. And that's something to keep in mind. But if you want to make that application, do it right. You know, make sure that it's going on the right acres at the right time. Don't just throw it out there at R5 <laughs> because, you know. Right. So, and, and and if we are, and you did talk about standability, and that is related to foliar disease as well, you know, right? Because when we're, when we're filling that ear, that carbohydrate has to come from somewhere. And if that carbohydrate isn't coming from that up that ear leaf and above because we've got it riddled with insect or disease, it's got to come from somewhere and it comes from the stalk and it comes from the roots and that depletes all the carbohydrates that those tissues need to grow and survive. And that makes them really susceptible to these, what I call weak pathogens that tend to cause stalk rots and root rots. Yeah. So that's, that's an, another reason why we talk about protecting the crop during that stressful time. So. Well, Nathan, we really appreciate you having you in here and uh, I've, I've learned quite a bit. So. Well, thanks for having me and yeah. I, I enjoyed the Aquafina. Really delicious. I'm glad that was the takeaway. (laughs) You've been listening to Field Trials Unleashed. Agronomic trials, products, practices. What makes sense for you and your farm's profitability? Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we hope you've gotten some useful and practical information. Make sure to like, rate, and review, and we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, follow Craig and Eric on Twitter at Trials Unleashed. 
From there, you can get agronomic updates and submit questions for future shows. See you next time.